This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is brain researcher Chantelle Pratt. She's a professor at the University of Washington, and her work focuses on the neuroscience of individual differences. Chantelle's new book is called The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. Chantelle and I have a fascinating conversation about why our brains make us who we are, and she explains why embracing our different brains can help us open up to more connection and understanding. She breaks down what's true and what's not true about left and right brain thinking, the best way to care for our brains as we age, and how learning a different language is interestingly similar to learning how to manage conflict. Okay, let's get to my chat with Chantelle Pratt. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I think that this whole concept of just neuroscience and and neuro differences, it's really under discussed. And I think most of the time, very misunderstood. And you've done some fascinating work on neuroscience and just the whole framework of individual differences. When did you first become interested in studying the mind and specifically the differences of our brains? So I started out pre-med and I was in a pre-med, accelerated pre-med program purely because I thought this is sort of like a successful thing to do. I can, so I should, which was a whole nother, is a whole nother story. But I was at the point, I was 19 years old and I was at the point where I could, I had all of the classes I needed to apply to medical school, except a single social science class. 
And by accident of availability at the time, I was selling shoes in the mall. So I had to take a night class. And there was a psychology class available at the local junior college that I grabbed because it was the last thing I needed. And the first day, I remember the instructor talking about Phineas Gage and telling the story of this railway worker who had an iron spike driven up and through his right frontal lobe, although they didn't give those details, just through his head, and that he changed. You know, they didn't give all the details in the class, but just that this used to be a responsible, hardworking man. And then he was a little bit grabby at times and a little bit uninhibited and couldn't be relied upon. And I just had this moment after studying the organs of the body, you know, in this kind of pre-med, intensive pre-med environment, it just occurred to me in a new way that the brain is an organ that's job is to make you, you. The brain takes the oxygenated blood, you know, your, your lungs oxygenate your blood, your heart pumps that blood throughout your body, and your brain takes that oxygenated blood and it uses it for energy to create every thought, feeling, and behavior that you identify with. And the story of Phineas Gage, this person who's who changed so fundamentally when his brain changed, just highlighted that for me. The brain makes you you. And if you change the brain, our brains are changing all the time. You change the person. So that was my interest from the start. Yet when I started doing neuroscientific research, I realized that that is not the way the paradigm worked. And what I mean by that is, I don't know why this isn't so surprising to everybody. It's so weird to me that the way we've gone about understanding the relationship between the mind and brain is by taking a group of people and having them do different things. So take a, you know, 25 college undergraduates, and we could talk a lot about who goes into that study and how non-representative it is and have them do two things. You could say, oh, I'm doing math or looking at faces, or I'm reading sentences with low frequency vocabulary words or reading sentences with high frequency vocabulary words, we average all of the individual brains that go into that study and we form theories based on the way the group of people do these two different tasks. So if a hard sentence uses more right hemisphere than an easy sentence, when we smush all of those individuals together, then we say, oh, you know, the right hemisphere does hard things. This is a gross oversimplification, but I've always argued vehemently as I, as I sort of grew up in the scientific world that our theories have to account for why two different people doing the same thing look different, right? Like why aren't we explaining the mind and the brain at the level of the individual? I was sort of surprised that it wasn't totally the most interesting thing to everyone else around me that was studying this. And then, you know, when I got my first job working in a neuroscience lab, I brought with me one particular skill, which was the fact that I was good with little kids because I had my own. And she was my practice brain. You know, she was extremely chill. One of the things I'm most thankful for on an individual differences space is that she got her dad's temperament. So she was not mine. So she would just hang out, like 
play games, eat goldfish, let me put this hat on her head that recorded her brainwaves. And we put her in the lab and played words that she understood and words that she didn't. And lo and behold, her brain is completely reverse organized from the vast majority of people on the planet. So her language is stronger in the right hemisphere than the left. And her brain told me that before her body could even tell me that she was like strongly left-handed. So, I mean, that cemented it for me, I think, having this child who, as I've learned, you know, as I've grown to learn is really, really rare, even for lefties, but wanting to understand people by understanding how different brains work was always my, my sort of passion and my way in. What are some misconceptions about the brain? We've heard about left brain people, right brain people, right brain tasks, left brain tasks. Yeah. Is any of that real or is that just a myth? Mostly a myth and some of it's real. So it is true that the left hemisphere and right hemisphere to a certain extent get different jobs in the brain. The way that people differ is not I'm a left brained analytical thinker and a right brain creative thinker. The way jobs get divided up in the brain are, is not like that, not like analytical versus creative. Some people are certainly more analytical and certainly more creative, but it doesn't map onto how they use the two hemispheres of their brain. What's interesting to me is that the extent to which a job gets assigned to the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere are both differs in different individuals. And some people have more balanced brains. You can kind of think of it as a team. So if you have a team of people, let's say you have a team of two people to make it easy and make a left hemisphere and right hemisphere. And one person on the team has a strong sort of verbal skill set, And the other person on the team has strong graphic skills. If you have teams with this kind of profile, the, your best bet is to assign jobs differently to the different people, right? They have different skill sets. And so, you know, if you give the high verbal person the visual graphic job, when you have somebody who's really, really good at that, it's inefficient. If you have brains where your two hemispheres are, are structured strongly differently, job assignment becomes very systematic. And the way that the left hemisphere and right hemisphere come to earn their jobs is more I don't want to say more organized, but it's more predictable. The, the good thing about that brain is that you're going to get highly specialized regions that are really good at their jobs. The challenging part of that brain is that like if you have a team with one person that's really good at, at verbal things, what I didn't mention is that the more specialized that person or that brain becomes, the worse they are at doing other jobs. So if that person gets overworked or overwhelmed or calls in sick, and you need somebody to do verbal things, you're more vulnerable to injury and things like that. What's interesting to me, I've been studying this right-left thing for my whole life. All vertebrate animals have two separate hemispheres that are not mirror symmetrical. Humans have the strongest asymmetry, the strongest differences between our, brain, our brains, arguably because there's some advantage to having this kind of specialization, like having similar kinds of jobs get assigned to one hemisphere and the other, having some organizational principles. But people, first, the way that our brains get lateralized is by handicapping or shrinking 
the right hemisphere. It's not that if you look at somebody who's left-handed or has a more balanced brain, it's not that the lops, what I call lopsided, or the person who's strongly atypical, it's not that they have a bigger left hemisphere. It's that they have a slightly smaller right hemisphere. So as one hemisphere shrinks, there becomes systematic differences in what jobs they get. And the way people differ is in that how lopsided they are. People with more symmetrical brains job assignment becomes more variable. Like a lot more of their jobs involve both hemispheres, which is interesting because there's something about the wiring of the two hemispheres that gives them their jobs as well. So what really underpins this idea of an analytical thinker is that our left hemisphere seems to be made up of these expert modules, tiny networks of neurons that have a single job to perform and that get really good at it kind of work in autonomy, don't talk to other things, are not concerned with what else is going on in the brain. Just I'm looking for a particular input. I'm spitting it out. I do it really fast. This allows you to be good at things like language that come in in a big sequence. Whereas the right hemisphere tends to have these bigger connections between distant parts of the brain. So in the right hemisphere, something that's taking audio input, visual input, memory can all be more distantly connected. So what I think is interesting is as jobs start to get assigned across these two hemispheres, how might the way we do things change? How might a sort of big connected pattern detecting right hemisphere contribute to language? Something that we usually think of as fast and expert, you know, highly learned systems. So anyway, that whole idea of laterality is still hotly debated, but really I, I think the right thing to consider is that the way that we differ is in how specialized our two hemispheres are. And I think the result of this, the sort of cliff notes is that, do you solve problems by looking at the forest, by considering lots of different information and doing a pattern detection kind of approach? Or are you a kind of divide and conquer, do little things? And and when I say, are you, I mean, is your brain, this is not something that you're necessarily explicitly aware of, but is your brain sort of dividing the world into little problems and, and having expert modules that come up with the right answer really fast and output sort of independently from one another. And I guess at an even higher level, I think it's bizarre and cool that even though every vertebrate animal has two hemispheres, we still don't know why and what the actual organizational principles are of these two hemispheres. And I think the reason for that is simply because we're focusing on what's the same across people. And my in my work, my whole life since the beginning, since graduate school, I've shown that the right hemisphere is a place that there's a lot more variability than the left. And so we don't know, we don't know what it does. We've known for 150 years that the right hemisphere is involved in language, but every textbook on the planet will show you Broca's area and Wernicke's area in the left hemisphere and tell you this is where language lives. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. 
The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, thinking more about language, you look in your book about how bilingualism affects the brain. How does being able to speak two languages change the brain? And does learning another language actually change the way that you think? A great question. The first thing I want to say is that being bilingual is also not, it's not a unidimensional thing. Like there are so many different facets of language experience that matter when it comes to shaping the brain. Bilingual language experience and the extent to which it shapes how you think depends on how early you learn the language. Importantly, I think the most underappreciated thing is that just knowing a language in and of itself doesn't change your brain as much as using the language. So your brain is always very dynamically considering the repertoire of behaviors you have at any given point, right? So if I know French, which I do not, so it's a silly example, but if I know French, but I never use it, like I learned it in junior high or whatever, when I walk into a room, my brain is not gonna elevate French as a possibility of a way to behave, right? But if I use French on a daily or weekly, I talk to my parents on the weekend or whatever, my brain always considers English and French in any behavioral interaction. And that changes things. We've shown in the lab that this changes the kind of attentional and reward circuits that are involved in selecting how to behave in a particular context. And in other labs, they've shown that people who are bilingual speakers that go back to a country where they only use one of their two languages, even for 30 days, and come back to the lab, have sort of reset to a monolingual mind frame. So knowing a language is not as important as using. I mean, obviously you can't use it if you don't know it, but using it is really important in shaping how you think. And then there are other things that are really interesting that are like how similar are your languages to one another? So how much conflict is there? So I actually was medium proficient in Spanish for a long time. Then I married an Italian man. And I swear in my brain, Italian and Spanish are the exact same language. So in, in Spanish, you say, como se dice, da, 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 da. How do you say, blah, blah, blah. And in Italian, you say, come si dice, blah, blah, blah. There's one vowel different. Dice and dice are the same word. They're just pronounced differently. And so my brain went, whoop, and it created a Spitalian language. And I didn't have enough experience to pull those apart. The more similar two languages are, the more work your brain has to do to kind of manage that interference. So when it comes to thinking differently, I think the best evidence we have really, and it depends on when in the lifespan you're measuring a bilingual individual and all these other factors, is that bilinguals are used to managing conflict because they have in any behavior, in any situation, they have multiple ways to behave. I think it's also interesting that most bilinguals are bicultural. And I think that even those of us who speak one language can sort of reverse engineer how this would 
work in our brain because we select different words to use if we're at home or at work with family, with friends, on a podcast. We select different behaviors, right? So we use a context to kind of elevate our repertoire of behaving, our playbook of behaving. And bilingualism amps this up, right? Because there's just like, for every word, for every object, you have multiple ways of talking about it. Let's go back to talking about a balanced brain. What's the difference between a lopsided versus a balanced brain? It's something you touch in on in the book. And I'm curious to even understand what that means. Yeah, so a person who has a more balanced brain, essentially, okay, let's talk about handedness. This is probably the strongest evidence we have that our hemispheres have different skills, right? So handedness, the kind of motor function that it takes to write something with a pen or pencil or eat with a fork, it's incredibly complex. There's something called a hand knob in your motor cortex. It's so big that you can see it with the naked eye. It looks like a U-shaped fold in your motor cortex because there's a lot of brain going into controlling your hand. So We usually think, okay, 90% of the world is right-handed, 10% are left-handed, but in fact, handedness is a continuum. I think this is going to be true of many, many aspects of brain functioning. We tend to identify extrovert, introvert, left-handed, right-handed, but in fact, I think it's more accurate to think of this as an axis of the different computational skills of the two hemispheres. So there are a lot of different ways you can figure out how lopsided your brain is. On my website, I have this cool game where you can actually use the mouse and take your left hand and your right hand and try and check as many boxes as you can in like a one minute time frame and see how, you know, you have to get right in the little area and say how, how much faster or how many more boxes do I click with my left and right hand? And that will give you some insight into like, oh yeah, I identify as right-handed, but I only hit like one more or two more boxes with my right than my left hand. Whereas some people literally can't barely hold a pencil with their left hand or a mouse. And that gives you some idea about how different the two hemispheres are, how different they are in size and in wiring. And there are a lot of interesting things that fall out of that based on how jobs get distributed across your two hemispheres. So not only handedness, that's just an easy one to observe. You can also measure eyedness and footedness and and other kinds of things, but face processing, emotion processing, language, and language I want to emphasize is not a single thing. It's this multi-level process by which we use symbols to understand the world. And one of the most fundamental differences between people is simply how specialized, how different are their two hemispheres and how does job assignment work in the brain based on that? So it's kind of like having the team where you have two people who are well-rounded and they get the same jobs versus having two people that are specialized in them and can only do one job or the next. And things like face processing, visual spatial skills, language abilities, verbal coding abilities, problem solving vary as a function of how lopsided your brain is. Your book at its core is really about how different doesn't always mean better or worse, which I think you were just touching on. Can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit about the frequency or speed in which our neurons talk to each other? Yeah. I want to first vibe off of that different doesn't equal, doesn't have to be better or worse. To me, that's the most important message in the book. I think part of why the field has been hell bent on 
on sort of taking this view that there's like an, a normal brain and then there's abnormal or atypical is that we don't want people to be irresponsible and say like, oh, my brain is better. My brain is worse. And then from there, like, how do you make your brain better? This is the way to win. A part of the reason is because it's expensive <laughs> to do individual differences research and it's logistically complicated. But if you take the human brain in the context of a hundred million years of evolution, and then think about the kinds of things we're asking it to do right now, you know, the kinds of jobs we're asking it to perform right now, it's really narrow. I mean, first of all, if your brain, if one in 10 people, one in nine, 9.7% of the US population can be characterized as ADHD, for instance, this is one statistic I read. One in 10 brains work like this. It makes things like school challenging. But it's so easy to imagine why having a person who has an organically driven brain, a person who notices squirrels would be really useful for human evolution or for vertebrate evolution. I'm not going to say the brain won't continue to evolve and that there aren't ways for it to improve. But a lot of the things that we think are good, like the ability to use a goal to drive your behaviors, to be goal-oriented or internally focused, pay, quote unquote, pay attention, the ability to pay attention, have a cost. First of all, it's incredibly energetically demanding to hold a goal in mind and behave according to that. One of the most fundamental bottlenecks of the brain is that we can only hold one to possibly three real pieces of information at in mind at any given time and use them to control or shape behavior. But when you're doing that, when you're paying attention and you're focusing on the task at hand, your brain and the reward system in your brain uses your goal as a way of deciding what's important and what's not important around you. It turns up the volume on the signals that are coming in that it thinks are relevant to the task. And these signals might be coming from your inner world or your outer world, retrieving a memory or something like that. It turns down the volume on things that it thinks are irrelevant. So when you're behaving in a goal-directed way, your brain is shaping your interpretation of reality. You're literally not seeing, hearing, or processing lots and lots of information. So like a hardcore example of this is a, a task called the attentional blink, which I also have on my website. If people just want to play with their brain, you know, these games and figure out how their brains work. The attentional blink is a task where you give people a stream of letters and numbers that flashes really quickly in front of you. Your goal is to detect a certain kind of target, like numbers and a string of letters, letters and a string of numbers, circles and a string of squares. You're looking for a particular thing. It's very goal oriented. What happens is there's a phenomenon called the attentional blink, which is that once you've detected your target, there's an amount of time that varies between like 120 milliseconds. It, it, it's different for different people, 120 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds, where you actually don't see the next stimulus. If it comes in in that, in that window, you don't notice it. So being focused or being goal-driven is, in many ways, the absence of being present. You're seeing what you expect to see. You're focusing on a particular type of information and you're not seeing or not, you know, not being able to notice the squirrel is also like not being able to perceive the world around you as it is. 
And I think that's something people dramatically underestimate. Can we talk a little bit about causal explanation? As you were explaining just this differential between what you're doing and what you actually, what you're seeing and what you actually might do, I thought this was a really interesting concept. By causal explanation, do you mean like the story we tell ourselves? Well, you say that our brains make up stuff all the time. What I wanted to dig into was to talk about the study where patients would spontaneously make up a story. Oh, yes. And that's really important for the left and right brain too. Yeah. So you said our brains make up stuff all the time. This is 100% true. It sounds so terrible, but let's just sort of situate this, okay? In your brain is is finite and it takes samples of the world around it. The world, the energy in that your brain is existing in is infinite and continuously changing. So think of your brain as sampling, you know, a little part of the environment, it's like connecting the dots. It takes in a limited amount of information. It's a lot, it's 80 billion neurons. It's a lot of information, but it's nowhere near all of the information. And it's connecting the dots at every level from, you know, is that thing that I'm looking at solid or interrupted by something else? What color is it to why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think this is what you're talking about, causal explanation. And it's so deeply uncomfortable, but so obviously true. So your brain only has certain kinds of information about why you behave the way you do. A large amount of our behavior is implicit and automatic. And even though that feels odd, we should be really thankful for it for all the reasons I was saying before that like holding a goal in mind is really effortful. And if you had to think and be present every time you decided how to hold your foot differently because you're wearing different shoes, like you really wouldn't be able to walk, talk and chew gum at the same time, right? The reason we can sort of walk, talk and chew gum at the same time is because walking and chewing gum and even talking to a certain extent are highly automatic. Yet there's a part of this brain that Michael Gazzaniga, Roger Sperry, and people who were observing patients who had the two hemispheres divided called the interpreter. And this part of your brain is telling you the story of why you're doing what you're doing all the time. And it's conscious. I think it would be fair to call this the personal narrative. But while we're doing it, our perception is that like, we're thinking about what we're going to do. It's this idea of what we're going to do next and why we're going to do it next comes before the thing. But in fact, we're behaving and then shortly thereafter telling ourselves, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And we're doing it with limited information because that part of your brain that is telling you the story is the conscious part of your brain. And it's just like people on the outside, it's observing your behaviors and making up a story for it. So what was interesting, and you can look at this on YouTube. I know there was one really cool episode with Alan Alda, where he was interviewing Mike Gazzaniga and these patients that have their brains severed, is that he would show two pictures on a screen. And because of the way the visual system works, one picture goes to one side of the brain, one picture goes to the other side of the brain. And in most of these patients, but not all, which is where individual differences come into play, they can only talk about what their left hemisphere knows. What's strange about this is 
it feels like they're only consciously aware of what their left hemisphere knows because we don't have other good ways of asking the right hemisphere to tell us what it knows. So if they ask the patient what they saw, they're gonna report that they saw the thing that went to their left hemisphere. But then if they give their left hand a pencil and tell them to draw something, the left hand is controlled by the right hemisphere, they're gonna draw a different picture. Now, their left speaking hemisphere is watching what their hand is doing. And what's interesting, what you can see in this video is that oftentimes when they asked a patient, why, why did you draw a, one example was that the person draw, drew a timer and they said they saw the sun. I think it was like a sunshine in one hemisphere and like a sand timer in the other hemisphere. And they drew the sand timer and they said sun. And then they asked them like, what did you see? And the patient responded, the sun. What did you draw? And they had the sand timer. And he said, I was thinking about a sundial. So he spontaneously created this story that would integrate what he was experiencing, what he, you know, the, what the left hemisphere experienced and what the left hemisphere observed. And this is where the, the idea of an analytical left hemisphere or an interpreter was born. So what about those of you who are fortunate enough to have both hemispheres connected by really fast, you know, hundreds of millions of very fast neurons. And so you, you perceive the world as thankfully as an integrated whole. Your best way of catching this interpreter or my best way of sort of intuiting that this happens in your brain is to think about a time when you woke up in an unfamiliar place. And especially if there's like jet lag or drinking or something involved that messes with memory. So you wake up the next day and you open your eyes and sometimes you can hear the interpreter sort of hypothesis testing. Like, where am I? Like, or that's not my, that's not my dresser wait or you know you hear the music on the radio and you're like wait like this is not my alarm you know and you sort of can hear yourself hypothesis test there's a just a fraction of a second before you remember you're in a hotel you're traveling or you're at a friend's house or whatever where you can hear that that storytelling of your brain like where am i what am i doing happening what's the best way for us to take care of our brains as we age given all of the intricate and elegant and intense work that we're doing for most of our lives. So I'm not an expert in aging and I'm sure that the answer to everything is eating well and exercising, but from an information standpoint, I can tell you some things. All of our brain is learning from our experiences, right? But there are parts of the brain that learn for longer times than others, the sort of different experiential windows. And, you know, in terms of what I study, which is the way different brains sort of process information and understand the world, it's really interesting because these systems will decide they've had enough input and kind of get fixed at different time points. So we talked about language. Language is one of these perceptual characteristics where the human infant is born able to detect all of the sounds in all of the languages that exist and sign language as well, visual, spatial. But within the first six months of life, that brain is already deciding this is my subset of sounds. This is my environment. And it starts to create representations of those sounds and lose the ability to hear other sounds. 
it starts to get good at a particular environment and lose the ability to process other environments. When it comes to aging, I think there are other really important, we call these experience expectant regions of experience dependent regions of the brain. Experience expectant are the sensory regions. The experience dependent regions of the brain make up your ideas about what it means to be yourself. You know, they make up your database. So vocabulary and things like that, that continue to grow across the lifespan are encoded in these cortical regions. And I think that as people age, they tend to feel more vulnerable in new situations as they start to feel processing slow down or body slow down. They tend to sort of restrict the environments that they operate in. And when this happens, if this happens, your brain also loses the ability to adapt and learn new things. So from my standpoint, one important way to take care of your brain while aging is to expose it to new things and to consider that your brain is learning to adapt to an environment that might not, that might include things that you don't realize are your environment, like your, your anxieties, your mental reality, the things that you perseverate on television, things that you see on the media, like your brain considers any mental experience and experience and it adapts to that. So being mindful of what you're feeding your brain your experiences are the, exactly the thing that your brain is prepared to operate in. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and I feel pretty certain that it's going to give people a new way of thinking about their brains and also really helping to flatten the hierarchy in terms mm -hmm. of one hemisphere being better than the other. And maybe for those who might have identified themselves through this kind of neuro hierarchy, there might be an opportunity to reset and, and, and see themselves a little differently. Thank you so much. I think one thing I will add is that I think is really important. And you talked about this in the very beginning is that how much of our identity, you know, identity is such an important thing, right? And how much of what we consider when we think about ourselves is actually related to how our brains work. I mean, there are so many labels that we put on ourselves that are central to our identity. Like, I think that most people who consider themselves left or right brained, I don't think that would sort of elevate in the way that something like being like for me, being a single mom or a scientist would, would elevate my, my identity. But it's really the way your brain represents those labels and uses them to kind of tell you stories about why you're doing what you're doing. That I don't want to say that's what matters, but but that's where that lives, right? That lives in the way your brain has learned what makes you you. The the way your brain has learned to drive you through the world in a way that brings you good things and avoids bad things. And and I hope, I mean, for me, the heart reason I wrote the book is that I feel like people are less and less willing to disagree, to come together through disagreements, to connect when they disagree. And I think that if you start to understand all the ways that your brain tells you a story, it might open up your sense of what it means to be right and right or wrong. And it might open you up to a, a different brain with a different perspective that has different inputs and different wiring and different lopsidedness and came to its answer in an equally reasonable way for it. You know, like, can you, instead of saying, man, this person makes bad decisions, can you say like, I wonder 
what about that person's brain and that person's experiences has adapted them to think that's a good decision? You know, could that help us to connect with people who work differently, who come from different places, who were built differently or shaped differently? Because at the end of the day, the way you are right now is a point in time. We're all changing with every instant, but it's a point that can be understood if we can reverse engineer our brains. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Chantel Pratt. I highly recommend her book, The Neuroscience of You, which is out this month. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.